Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live, the show where we speak to the people who have the courage to challenge the suffocating and coercive authoritarian ideas that appear to have taken over Western civilization. What happened to the Enlightenment? And what has happened to the spirit of science? Joining us is the Australian political commentator, scientist and former professor at James Cook University who has published over a hundred papers in international science journals and helped many Australians complete their PhD work. I speak of Peter Ridd who joins us now. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks very much. Well, Peter, I first came across you on my editor, Rowan Dean's Outsiders program, where you were engaged in this insane conflict regarding freedom of scientific speech with a university over your work. And even though you lost the battle, you've become a sought after writer and speaker. Did you expect to end up as a headline name in Australia's publications fighting against the establishment? Uh, no, I, I sort of knew that eventually I'd probably be chucked out of the university, but I never knew when it was going to happen. And in fact, I did this interview um, with um, Alan Jones, actually. And when I walked out of the interview, I had no idea that actually it was going to cause a bit of a furore. But, but anyway, I think it's what's happened is that there's a whole lot of things that are happening all at the same time to a lot of different people and uh, mine just happened to be a case that people wanted to donate money to to try to do the legal action and uh, they wanted to fight to actually challenge this stuff. Well, I think also, Peter, the idea of freedom of expression and scientific liberty is something that the Australian people still uphold and desire. Do you think that your particular fight that you had was sort of a crucible for what's going on in the wider community? And perhaps that's why people were looking to you for guidance. Well, I don't think they were looking to me for guidance. So essentially, look, I got fired for saying there was not enough quality assurance of great battery science and I was able to give some, you know, examples where there's just no ifs, no buts about it, that there's definitely a problem there. You then get fired and people say, well, that's unfair. You know, he's doing his job. Um, we have this thing, freedom of speech. People really value that. And then when we put our hand up and say, well, in order to take this ultimately to the High Court, we're going to need a huge amount of money. And ultimately we, we raised over one and a half million dollars. People just wanted to contribute, not because I was anything special, I don't think. It's just that here was a fight which we could have. They could chuck a, you know, hundred bucks into the into it and, you know, and here we have a fight and people want to fight. Well, you essentially said, good news, the Great Barrier Reef is alive and the collective mob came after you with pitchforks. Uh, shouldn't your fellow scientists be happy that the reef is teeming with life? 
Yes, they should be. And since then, after I first got into trouble in 2017 or 18, and since then it's just got better and better. So uh, every year the Australian Institute of Marine Science publishes statistics on the amount of coral on the reef. And the last one, which came out in the middle of 2022, we've got record high coral, never more coral. But, of course, they look on all the bad parts of it. They say, oh, it's a different type of coral. Well, it's the fast-growing, fragile coral. So they'll always try to see um, bad news. And also they're very embarrassed by the fact that essentially, um, you know, the reef is in good condition. But But the most important thing is it proved what I said, that there was a quality assurance problem. They said a huge amount of coral died due to the bleaching events in 2016, 17, 2020 and 2022, and then we've got record high coral cover. So they must have been wrong. It proves without any doubt that they were wrong, that a lot of coral died. And it proved what I said, there's a quality assurance problem. But they're never going to admit it. They will never admit that. We're going to have to more or less have a rejuvenation of these science institutions to get a proper debate in there before uh, there'll be a, a proper balance uh, going on in the institutions. Well, let's go back a, a little bit. What did the uh, tiny Peter love about science, in a particular ocean? Like, what made you want to become a scientist? Well, I've always had an, an interest in science, uh, not necessarily oceanography. I only ended up with, in oceanography purely by accident. Living in North Queensland, I was doing a, a, ultimately a PhD on geophysics, <laughs> electromagnetism on land, basically, and a job came up at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. I didn't know anything about it but learned a lot of oceanography. So that's the way the water moves, tides, currents, temperatures, movement of sediment, and also um, doing instrumentation development, making instruments for measuring things. But I ended up in oceanography purely by accident, actually. Well, I mean, you've been studying the oceans around the Great Barrier Reef since the early 80s, and you also have done a lot of other scientific work in Australia. Now, you must have a few stories to tell, Peter, because Australia is famous for things that want to eat you and kill you. Did you ever have any close encounters <laughs> where you thought, heck, I might have gone a bit too far with the science gig? Yes, I remember being up in Kakadu National Park and we had to survey this huge mud bank uh, on the, um, which river was it? The Alligator River, South Alligator River. And I was the Johnny who had to hold the, you know, the surveyor's staff right down at the water's edge while uh, somebody in the boat had his Winchester ready to shoot the crocodile and the fella up the top of the bank had his little theodolite. And I was getting very upset because I was sinking into the mud I ended up sinking in up to my thighs in mud, was up to my waist in water. And then this huge tourist boat comes uh, down and starts feeding a crocodile about two or 300 metres down the, down the river. So it was pretty bloody stupid what we were doing. But uh, I must say I was very, very upset with, uh, with the fellow on the theodolite who was taking too much time. Well, it sounds like you were basically a mud popsicle with the, the tourist boat burling the water up as you went past. I mean, goodness gracious. It's a miracle you even survived to fight the university. But uh, you, were, you were also, of course, a teacher. And there have been many complaints from teachers and students alike that universities are not what they once were. In particular, the learning experience seems to have shifted from being something about science to more like the approved science. Now, are you finding this a disturbing shift in the way we treat education? Oh, certainly. Our fundamental problem that we have in society at the moment stems from the education 
Higher education sets the syllabus in the schools and then that teaches what happens from grade one upwards. Now, in physics, what I was doing really wasn't much of a problem. But by the time you get into marine biology, it starts to become a problem. And then when you're in the humanities, it's a disastrous situation, especially when you look at the way they teach teachers what they have to teach. So, yes, um, if you have to go to the root cause, it's in our educational system and our schools and our syllabi have to be sorted out sooner or later. Well, it's not, we see speakers deplatformed and shouted down by kids wielding megaphones, and the university staff don't exactly stop this from happening. What sort of scientists no. will these kids become? And do you have much faith in the scientific process when the kids with megaphones are the ones responsible for independent research? Uh, it's certainly a problem, but if you talk to a lot of young people, and I did as a, you know, as a, a university lecturer, because we, we, I was particularly close to a lot of my students coming from a little university and a little department. Um, yes, they've been brainwashed, but they know they're being brainwashed and they can actually see around it. A lot of them can see around that. Um, yes, there's the ones with the megaphones, but they're actually in the minority. If you're in marine biology, they're not necessarily in a minority, but if you're in engineering or physics and mathematics or even in medicine, they're coming out surprisingly sensible, even though they need, they know they must play lip service to the, to the, you know, the craziness that's going on. But don't, don't, as a young person yourself, Alexandra, don't give up on the, the young people. I certainly don't. Well, I gave up on my English literature class. I walked out after about half an hour. Yeah. I thought there's no way that I'm going to learn anything useful in this particular class. Yeah. But I've actually no, known no. students from school who, who loved science and they were really into the inquiring scientific spirit. They went to university for four or five years and they came out as just devout green supporters with no interest in the real science. I mean, is this good for Australia's future scientific credentials or are we going to be overtaken by other nations that pour more effort into the scientific process? Well, Australia's been behind in the hard sciences, physics, chemistry, mathematics and engineering for decades. Uh, that's been a problem. We are producing far too many biologists who know almost nothing about anything. And then you go down the, 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 from there to the environmental scientists who, know, who really are their training is completely pathetic. Um, so, yes, we, we are behind, but Australia for many years has become um, a, a very middle-tier ranking in the technology industry. We've never particularly been good, and we're certainly going downhill from there. Well, as a scientist, I'd be interested in your opinion on this because the general public has gone from having very little exposure to science, you know, past their school years, to having an acute cult-like obsession with the imminent climate collapse. Now, we hear them say things like, trust the science, and they repeat this without realising that science is not a faith built on trust, it's a discipline created by questions and doubt. What do you make of this public behaviour? Well, actually, they don't trust it. They may say that, oh, well, you've got to follow the science. But when you look at the opinion polls, it's very clear. I mean, there's a, a great opinion poll came out in America that they were people were asked, uh, do you believe that climate change has become a religion that is being used to control us? Because it was a famous comment made by one of the Republican candidates. And over 60, oh no, 60 percent of Americans agree that climate change has become a religion like. Even almost 50% of Democrats agreed with that statement. So 
although that it may look terrible that everybody's believing it, they actually don't, right? Uh, and there's other um, information like, for example, if you if you look at the number of people who tick the box on Qantas, do you want to carbon offset your your uh, airfare? Just a very few, a small percentage are prepared to do that. If you ask them in a poll, how much are you prepared to pay each week on climate change? The average amount is $1 a week. So although that people pay lip service to the climate change god, they don't actually follow it uh, as much as politicians think and as much as people in the elites seem to believe it. They're dealing with everyday issues and they can look at one and a half degrees and say, mm, is that really such a problem? Which, of course, it's not. It's not a very devout faith then, or at least not a very profitable one. No, uh, it's not, yeah. I've been wanting to ask you this question for since I've been reading uh, you and The Spectator for a long time. We are increasingly hearing the term consensus being used in place of evidence. Now, if something has a consensus, yeah. you're not allowed to produce a contradictory set of data or open a discussion that challenges the prevailing th uh, thought. Is this misuse of consensus a problem for the current scientific community? It's a huge problem. It's the, at the bottom of the problem, actually, because what you actually have to encourage in science is uh, dissidents. Now, we have this thing called the peer review system um, where everybody's work needs to go to peers before it can be published. There's nothing more guaranteed to form groupthink than a system where you have to give it to your mates to give it a tick. Uh, that's not the way Isaac Newton worked or Einstein. There was no such thing as peer review in those days. It's a relatively recent thing. So consensus is about you know, all the mates getting together and deciding what everybody's going to think, where real science is challenging everything that you believe and that in order to fix the scientific system, which is now based on consensus, wrongly based on consensus, we actually have to spend money to make, um, to kill the group thing. And one of the things that I think we have to do is that the Australian Research Council should put aside 10% of its money to do replication studies to challenge work that's out there that hasn't really been checked properly and is probably very likely in many cases to be wrong. But you need to pay to get that um, anti-groupthink checking going on. Yes, well, I didn't realise how new the peer review system was, but the actual concept of consensus is not new. The real story of science is a cycle of powerful religious or political bodies that then enforced a consensus with a very few individuals who were challenging it. And some of them were often laymen as well, not even people with lists of credentials. Yeah. But challenging it cost them a great deal personally. Are you perplexed that this so-called most progressive and enlightened society demonises scientific inquiry in favour of institutional power? No, I don't think, I'm not surprised at all about it. I mean, one of the things about today's world, this sort of networked world, is that the network is the one who succeeds. And people like Newton and Einstein, they were the antithesis of the networkers. They were loners, they were individuals, they thought for themselves. So it's almost inevitable that what has happened has happened. We should have been able to predict, a clever person could have predicted in the 1960s what was going to happen. Uh, so no, I don't think we should be, um, but we need to institute systems to break that group think and stop the the consensus builders um, dominating everything. And I think the general public needs to stop idolising the idea of groupthink as being a virtue. 
But you write, and I quote, there needs to be a properly funded group of scientists whose sole job is to find fault with the science. Now, how, yeah. how would you go about doing that? Would you suggest random checking or would there be like a review system where someone like you could say, hey, I'd like you to go and check this random section of papers that I've seen come up. How would you envision a proper scientific checking body to operate? You do it in two ways. You, you, you pick on science that matters, right? So the first one is, is science that's being used for government policy. Now, at the moment, the government just believes some great bower reef expert that says the reef is doomed. And they don't actually go and check that before they throw another billion dollars at it. So that's the first thing. Is it being used for government policy? In which case, let's get a few dissenters and see what they have to say. We don't have to believe them, but let's get them to challenge it and see both sides of the argument. The other thing that you need to worry about is that safe in medical research has been a, a recent real problem with Alzheimer's research. So in the early 2000s, papers came out, well, one major paper came out saying these beta amyloids which gum up your brain are the main problem or, or something like that. It's only in the last couple of years that it's been shown that that was completely wrong and that all these scientists went down this rat hole, the wrong rat hole, um, wasted billions of dollars and lots and lots of time following research that ended up being wrong in the first place. So that's another thing that the Australian Research Council would look at and say, well, look, we're spending all this money on this particular direction. Maybe we should just check this original research to make sure that it really holds up. So those are the two, two things that you could do, um, which would make an enormous difference. Well, instead of throwing all this endless billions of dollars worth of grants at people, perhaps they could do what they do in mathematics, where they offer a prize for someone who could prove the negative. For instance, if you had a piece of government policy, maybe yes. they could say, here's a million dollars if you can prove us wrong before we implement this. I mean, that might be a nice way to also help. It's actually a really good idea. I hadn't thought of that. Um, I can tell you what you shouldn't do, and I was proposing this five or six years ago. I thought... We need to set up an independent body of scientists to challenge the, you know, the consensus. But I realised very rapidly that that would just get taken over by the consensus group that it was supposed to challenge. But I think that if you had, say, the, the Minister of Environment, the Minister of uh, Agriculture, had a $10 million budget that they could, could set aside for doing scientific quality checks... And now I know that half the time Labor would be in power and it wouldn't do much good, but for the other half of the time you could actually do quite a bit of good having real challenges to that. But it would have to be run by a politician who is responsible to us, not the scientists who are actually responsible to themselves. You know, they, they act, the scientists tell the ministers and the politicians what to do, which is a shocking system, not the other way around. Well... You remain deeply involved in the saga of the Great Barrier Reef, and yet every time you write about the recovering health of coral and various, you know, various agencies come out of the woodwork to threaten you and the publications that you write for. Now, who would have yeah. thought that writing about coral could be so dangerous? Indeed, why is coral, in particular the Great Barrier Reef, such a topic of international concern? Because the UN's got its claws in the climate saga when it comes to the Great Barrier Reef. Have you have you stumbled across maybe one of the climate cults? biggest uh, test subjects? Well, the Great Barrier Reef is one of the biggest because they can show all, all this corals die We've lost half the coral, which is completely wrong. Uh, so if you go to England or you go to America, almost everybody knows that the Great Barrier Reef is almost finished. 
So it's become iconic. So when somebody like me comes and challenges and says, this is a complete load of baloney, you are a threat uh, to them. So it's not surprising that, that they pick on this. So, you know, there's uh, Great Barrier Reef, there's bushfires and a few other things which they can really point to wrongly as um, this demonstrates that we're all doomed to die in a, a, a hot hell. Well, they can't really decide if it's a hellfire or if it's a flood. They, they haven't really got a consensus on that one yet. <laughs> I mean, you keep hearing about you're going to drown, but also it's going to be really hot. So can you pick one, please? But yeah. it seems from afar that a lot of very powerful people and businesses have bet the house on the notion of apocalypse. What happens, Peter, in, you know, 20 years when there's no indication of the end times? It's going to be less than 20 years. Um, so... They will withdraw and pretend that they never, they never supported this whole apocalypse thing. It's a bit like you know invading Iraq. I mean, I have to confess that I was, I thought it was a good idea because I thought Saddam Hussein was a bad person. I realise now that I was completely wrong. Most people now would probably agree that invading Iraq was a huge mistake, um, and not remember that they might have been in favour of it at the time. So it'll be a a slow withdrawal, but I think what it's going to need is something else to distract our attention so we can run off with on some other maybe more genuine doom scenario before we will quietly forget that actually we were barking up the wrong tree on the climate change thing. The trouble now is there's so much money invested in it uh, by big businesses that they don't want to drop it. But it will, I, could, I think you can see it already happening in Europe and in America. People are starting to lose interest. It comes about 19th on the list of most important things that people are worried about if you poll people. The wheels are already falling off this thing. It may not look like it, but I'm sure they're already falling off. What they need is some kind of, I don't know, alien invasion to go on over there <laughs> while they quietly shred the climate papers on this side <laughs> of the fence, you know, so that no one notices. But you had a great yeah. you had a great quote in one of your pieces, and I just want to share it with our listeners. You said that the 2020 summit exposed the hypocritical, illogical and treacherous nature of most people in the modern green movement. It has been hijacked by a quasi-religious ideology, which makes it ineffective at solving the big problems that we face. Now, Peter, as, I, as a kid, we had Clean Up Australia Day and things like that going on. But now I have never seen more rubbish on the ground than in 2023. Is this, you know, have we lost sight of environmentalism? Well, we have. When did you last hear about, say, worrying about the loss of the uh, rainforest in Papua New Guinea, and yet we're closing down the Victorian hardwood forest industry? What's going to happen? We're going to be importing timber. So the preoccupation with climate change, Great Barrier Reef in Australia, means that there's all these other things that are happening around Australia which we're not worrying about. I mean, I'm in a, at the moment we're travelling in um, northern New South Wales at the moment and problems, we've seen huge problems with noxious weeds, right? Nobody, we're not spending billions of dollars to fix that problem. Um, there are so many other things which we could worry about and spend that, but we are being diverted um, by things which we shouldn't be worrying so much about, like record high coral on the Great Barrier Reef. It's funny you use that particular example of noxious weeds. I'm actually in New South Wales and our family has a property here. Now, we get charged a fee from the government to deal with noxious weeds. The government never does yeah. a thing about noxious weeds, by the way, in most areas, and yet they make the farmers poorer so they can no longer afford to look after the weeds themselves, thus making the weed problem even larger. 
I mean, there doesn't seem to be anybody sitting in government saying, hang on, you're doing the reverse of what you say you're doing. Where is common sense gone? I can't find it. No, it's look, it's a huge problem. It's one of the points that I make. You know, I come from a, a real conservation background. My mum, you know, she didn't quite metaphorically stand in front of the bulldozers for the World Heritage listing of the rainforest in North Queensland, but she was right up there. Um, and so as a, you know, passionate conservationist, there are so many things which we should be doing which we're not. There are so many things which we should be worrying about. I mean, even on climate, I mean, moving away from the conservation things, so we should be worrying about having, if there's a massive volcanic eruption somewhere in the world, which happens every couple of hundred years, which will drop the temperature by a couple of hundred degrees. Now, the last time that happened was about 1815. It's going to happen again. Um, you know, a couple of hundred years is not so long. We are not ready for that. And yet we're worrying about a gentle warming of 1.5 degrees and more CO2 in the atmosphere, which will make everything, is making everything grow faster, especially in Australia. We've just got our priorities wrong. And a successful society is one which worries about the right things. And we're not worried about the right things at the moment. Yeah, well, Italy's uh, rumbling around at the moment thinking to itself, maybe, maybe it's our turn. Uh, but one, one yeah. last thing before I leave, because I really wanted to ask you this. The one thing that perplexes me, Peter, is that coral is one of the oldest forms of life on the planet. It also wanders around a lot. Now, we know that if the water warmed up a bit and the sea levels rose in this fictional apocalyptic scenario that we've got, all of the other life forms, like of all the life forms on Earth, coral is the one that's going to be least bothered by this. Surely other scientists know this. So why does the narrative continue that all the coral is going to die if there's a climate apocalypse when we know that isn't true? Well, this is something that just bewilders me. A one and a half degree increase in water temperature will very roughly double, no, 50, sorry, there'll be about a 50% increase in the growth rate of coral, 50% increase in growth rate. I mean, this is incredible. Um, you know, and, you know, it really has to get incredibly hot before there's going to be any significant worry. So, you know, corals, more than any other organism, really will lap up a gently warming climate. So you're right, it's a, it's a wonder. But this just shows you the utter corruption that's right through the scientific community that they're worrying about 1.5 degrees and they're not worried about the lantana on that, literally that hillside that I can see over there in the distance. I know our local council is one of the worst environmental vandals around with lantana and privet all the way down their private, their public property, and yet they want to preach to us about being a climate change council. But, yeah. <laughs> but look, before you leave us today, the Great Barrier Reef is still one of your great loves. Is there any exciting projects that you would like to share with our listeners that's happening at the moment or that you're working on? Well, I'm working on the Reef Rebels program. We're making a whole bunch of videos on the Great Barrier Reef just showing how it's in such good shape. There's going to be some really good news come out, I think, in the next uh, few weeks where, as the, the new uh, data comes out on the Great Barrier Reef. I've been looking at it going up on the web. It's looking really, really good. It might not be better than last year, but it's probably going to be equally equal to the record high coral that we had last year. So that's what we're doing at the moment. Uh, and when can people follow you or follow your work, Peter? The Reef Rebels um, YouTube channel is probably the best place to see or my Dr. Peter Red Facebook page. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's been fascinating and the adventure and story of science is absolutely worth everyone's time. Thanks very much. 
Well, that's all from us here today. I am Alexandra Marshall. Catch you next week.